Hey everybody, today I'm interviewing Sally Carson, um, the CEO and co-founder of Pinocchio. Sally, thank you very much for joining us. And let's kick straight off with, tell us about Pinocchio. Sure. Um, so, Pinocchio, I like to describe, and thanks for having me, um, I like to describe Pinocchio as a complete toolkit for building the Internet of Things. Um, it's hardware and it's software, so on the, let's see, on the hardware side we have this little guy. Um, it's a wireless microcontroller, similar tech specs to an Arduino Mega, if you're familiar with the Arduino universe. Um, but this one runs on a rechargeable LiPo battery, so you're going to charge it in a similar way to how you charge like an Android phone, little micro USB. Um, it's got built-in mesh networking, so if you have multiples of the boards, we call them scouts, multiples, they have um, built-in radios, so they're talking to each other locally using mesh networking. And then if you have, and a group of scouts is called a troop, of course. Um, and then if you've got one scout with a Wi-Fi shield on top, um, which we call Shields Backpacks in this Scout-like universe. Um, these are the same boards, one just has the Wi-Fi accessory on top. This one can bridge any number of these up to the web. So you have mesh networking, um, all wireless, uh, powered off the LiPo battery, and then only one board needed to bridge the whole group up to the web via Wi-Fi. So that's the hardware side. Um, and then on the software side, we have a web app called HQ. Um, and that just gets you playing with the scouts right away. They can connect to the web um, right out of the box, and we have a simple scripting language called Scout Script, so you can pull the boards out of the box for the first time and start to send commands like LED.red and see the uh, LED turn red right away, and it's all wireless. Um, so, and then we also have a streaming API that you can use over WebSockets or REST, <clears throat> and you can copy all your sensor data out in real-time streams using the central API just as a buffer or a backup. So if you don't, you're not locked into our system, if you don't want to use um, our servers, you don't have to. Um, that was a really core tenet of what we were trying to do, no lock-in. Um, you own your data, we don't own your data, um, and it's it's yours to use however you like. Okay, great. Okay, so, so um, to start from some of the first things you said, so what's the, what's the benefit of having these kind of multiple um, Pinocchios that talk to each other. Yeah, it's very um, decentralized. You know, it's yeah. it's very uh, apropos to what we're talking about here. So, um, I I really like the idea of mesh networking. Um, for me, it's it's a physical model that very much models itself after um, what you see on the web, where there's it's a bottom up structure. Um, there's no coordinator in these. They they all have all of the routing information they need to send information from one to the other. So if one goes offline out of the troop, all of the rest are still able to send information back and forth. Um, so it's kind of following that um, bottom-up emergent behavior style model. And and this kind of allows you to, um, I guess, decentralize uh, the, the work that each of them are doing. So each one's kind of specialized for a particular thing. So one might be measuring temperature, one might be uh, emitting a response. Um, I mean, that sounds really cool. And just you know, in terms of um, what actually inspired you to start the project? Yeah, so it started, and that's exactly right, like what you've described. Um, we've tried to push as much logic to the edge of the network as possible, and so if you lose internet connectivity, your project is still able to do things to collect data or to actuate all locally, and then when the internet connection comes back, it can sync back up to the web if you want it to. But you can have these as little autonomous networks out in the rainforest if you don't need the internet connection. 
Um, yeah, and it's built it's built to be very resilient in that way. Um, I think the project started. Eric, my co-founder, and I um, we were working together on a another project, and we were kind of at the same time geeking out on um, connecting hardware to the web. And he was working on a project where he was trying to automate his sprinklers in his veggie garden. Um, and being the geek that he is, he's like, all right, I, this should definitely be, it should be easier to connect hardware to the web. Um, it shouldn't be this difficult, you know. And kind of using the existing tools out there, he immediately hit the pain point. Like, I just want hardware talking to the web yeah. as a given, and then I want to, like, focus on the stuff I'm interested in, which is the sprinkler part. Um, so that was kind of like our first indication that maybe there was a pain point there for other people too. Um, and we even, in fact, started pursuing the sprinkler product idea initially as the as the idea. Um, but we're not like we're not super passionate about sprinklers per se. And but we are very passionate about democratizing technology and creating platforms for participation and creation. Um, Eric and I both have a background on the web. This is our first foray into hardware, and so like. I was very much influenced by early Web 2.0 companies, creating tools to help more people participate, more people use the technology at hand. So we kind of zoomed out and we said, how about instead of sprinklers, we make the platform that people could build a sprinkler project on, or they could build quadcopter mesh swarms, you know, or scientific, remote scientific research uh, sensor networks in the field. Um, so that was the initial thing. It was just like a scratch-your-own-itch project, and then we, we had a hunch that it might be a a viable business. Okay, that sounds awesome. And I think you're kind of beta testing it now. Do you have people um, already using it? Could you know? Could you talk about any examples about what people have done with it? Sure. Yeah. So we we did a crowdfunding campaign um, using Indiegogo last year, and, and you our, guys made loads of money. You 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 went over your targets. Amazing. We did. Yeah. Thank you. We were so happy about that. And that. You know, I mean, the money helps us produce these things that we want to have out in the world, but it's also just like this wonderful um, verification that we're on the right track. You know, that other people, in fact, are having the same pain point. And so, at this point, we started shipping out our crowdfunding perks, I want to say oh, six weeks ago. Um, and so, most people have them in hand at this point. There's still some international backers that are waiting for theirs to come through. Um, but So, we're starting to see the very beginnings of people building projects. like. One guy just wants, there's a lot of people that homebrew beer that want um, sensors to help them, you know, monitor and automate some of those processes, kind of keep the temperature regulated. Mm -hmm. um, so there's one guy in Reno that just sent us a photo of his early working prototype to monitor and control the temperature of the environment that his homebrewed beer is, is in. Um, all the way to, we just got an email this morning from a person that has a, a maple syrup farm in Quebec and they they want like a massive sensor network you know to to monitor I think they mentioned the vacuum I'm, I don't know very much about how maple syrup collection works but um, monitor the temperature of course and then the vacuum uh, for all the maple syrup coming out of the trees so it's super fun it's it's all the way from fun geeky stuff just for the hell of it you know like fun robotics projects um, all the way to very practical um, Research focus, scientific research, um, agriculture. So it, it's it's really a wide, a wide span of projects. That sounds amazing. Um, I mean, just in kind of in terms of, um, what do you see is the potential of this? I mean, say um, you know, kind of more and more people started using it. Like, what do you think could happen? Like, how can 
it changed the way we do things. Mm, yeah. I, I kind of have some like personal goals for Pinocchio. Um, so when I'm when I'm daydreaming about what this could turn into longer term, um, I'm my husband's a, a biologist. We hang out with mostly like field biologists and scientists. Um, and so I'm really interested in climate change research. And I, I have this vision of like once all of these little Pinocchios are out there in the world and they have sensors attached to them and they're collecting data, um, we'll be able to give customers the option to say, this this uh, stream of data is private. You know, this motion sensor in my house is private. I don't want that to be public data because that could tip off burglars. Um, but the air quality sensor in my backyard, no problem. Like that could be open data. I'll open that up and make that available to the public to use as they want. And so I'm really excited about this idea of like instrumenting the world, you know, with the sensor layer. And for all those folks that have opened up their sensor data, this whole like secondary use case comes up where you can build large scale web applications, do large scale um, like long-term uh, climate change research projects, um, like disaster relief, you know, if you can get real-time sensor data on the ground if something's happening, that could be really uh, vital. In the same way that Twitter's used, just as humans as sensors, saying like, okay, there was just an earthquake, here's what's going on. Um, I think that could be really valuable. I think that sounds, uh, that sounds fantastic. And then obviously, kind of in my day job, uh, you know, my, my kind of full-time business open data, uh, Knowledge. And I think it's amazing because at the moment we're really reliant on kind of governments um, yeah. and other big institutions to be the sources of reusable data. So, you know, we kind of right. just about justify governments releasing data under open licenses because mm -hmm. you know, taxpayer money funds it. While mm -hmm. um, actually, you know, when it comes to lots of things that matter, like, you know, kind of air pollution levels, um, you know, rising temperatures, everything else. Uh, there isn't a way for people to kind of do that much about it and kind of contribute back and release this information in a scalable right. way. Um, do you have you know, any of that kind of thinking built in terms of the interface? So in terms of um, someone uh, using Pinocchio, is there a way for them to say, right, you know, this is, this is private, I really want to make sure that this data doesn't get synced up to the internet anywhere, or, or it's stored in a particular way, but they, this, you know, have you kind of thought about that in the kind of user user interface to some extent, in, in the um, mechanism of it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think right now we're sort of in the process of formalizing it a little bit more. It's that, that process of getting like a, a read-only token from the API. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how well, we've documented it somewhat, but we really need to so where I feel like we are right now is like we have this awesome product and we've been heads down building it and now our challenge is to, it's shipped, you know, it's out there and people want it and our challenge is to like come up for air and actually like show it to people and explain like this is what's awesome. So there's been some, um, some stuff that we've built into it where I think we could do a better job of really formalizing it in terms of the, the user experience um, and that's, that's coming soon. So we want to make it a lot easier to do those types of things to say this source of data is open, this sort of source of data is closed, this is private. Um, but we're, it's kind of like half, halfway there. Like the functionality is there, we just need to do more to um, really bake it into the user experience. Okay, so one of the things that um, this connects to is I think you guys did a really 
fantastic job actually doing the crowdfunding, uh, telling everybody about it, you know, get, you know, making it more understandable and accessible. I think we're still kind of very early days in terms of mass uptake of these kind of uh, microcomputers mm. and what they can do. So I'd be really interested to know kind of what were the things you were thinking about in terms of, um, you know, getting kind of more wider uh, appeal and uptake and, um, you know, what do you think kind of user experience and design and marketing can add here? Mm, yeah, that's, that's cool, yeah. I think I want to, I want to have this product that is for participating in a very democratic way in building the Internet of Things, and it includes baked-in mesh networking, but I want it to be so easy to use that people don't need to know what mesh networking means, <laughs> you know? Nor do they care, or they don't really need to know well, Internet of Things. Can quickly explain what mesh networking is in case? Sure, yeah, so um, this is a great example. I was like using the, the little physical models. So just these guys talking locally to one another, each of these is a single node. But it's not hierarchical, it's not like this is the boss sending instructions down to each of these scouts. It's very flat, um, <clears throat> and each, each node is sending data to every other node or routing data on behalf of every other node. So if you have um, three Pinocchios, you have A, B, C. If A and C are out of range of each other, B can kind of send information on behalf. It can pass information. So if these are kind of around the corner of a house, it can help pass information. So in the context of Pinocchio, um, that's what we mean when we say mesh networking, just small pieces, loosely joined nodes passing information back and forth, but no top-down, you know, model where there's a coordinator that's sending that traffic. They're all just passing bits back and forth. Isn't that might be a terrible explanation of mesh networking, but that's the cliff notes. This yeah. is great. I was just going to ask, is there a limit to how many you can actually have in a network? Yeah, so um, it's, it's theoretical right now. So it, sh it should be in the hundreds, but no one has yet deployed that large of a troop. So we'll, we'll see in practice what the constraints are. I think probably the bottleneck ultimately will be the single board with Wi-Fi bridging up to the web. Um, but there's clever things we can do around um, kind of buffering and syncing up data as needed. Yeah, yeah so we'll, we'll see as people start building stuff, like where does it really break down? Yeah, because I was going to say the, the, the kind of bridge to the actual web is just done by exactly the same um, uh, module, but simply with a, with a kind of Wi-Fi attached. Yep. Shield, I think it's called. Yeah. 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 Shield is like the common nomenclature, and then in the Pinocchio universe where we have scouts, their their shields are backpacks. So if you can imagine, like, we have a Wi-Fi shield, but later we'll have a, you know, an environmental shield which has environmental sensors, and that's kind of like the scout is putting on his backpack that gives him extra accessories and capabilities, extra functionality. That's a nice way to think about it. <laughs> okay, so I, I interrupted, but um, so I guess I was I was previously asking about. Um, you know, what do you feel the importance of the user experience and design is? Yeah. What kind of challenges did you face? And sure, that's perfect actually, because I think developing the scout metaphor is a is has been helpful because for people who again don't really know or care what mesh networking means, they're just like, I just want a text message when the freezer is too warm. You know, there's there's really simple use cases like that where people are like, I keep all of my scientific specimens for my whole six-year PhD in this one fridge, um, and unfortunately this happens, like the, fr the fridge will just go offline, you know, it'll shut down in the middle of the night, and it's beeping to itself in an empty lab, and no one finds out until the next morning. And you really could lose, like, years of 
PhD work. So people are like, I don't care about Internet of Things. I don't care about mesh networking. I just want to text when the freezer gets too warm. That's all I care about. Um, so it really helps us from a you know, product design point of view. It helps to kind of create this metaphor. Um, these are scouts. A uh, field scout is just like one of the little minions. And then the one that bridges up to the web is a lead scout. It's a troop. They put on their backpacks. So trying to create metaphors that are um, referencing something that's already familiar to people to try to get them a, a mental model of what, what exactly is happening. And also just to make it more approachable. Um, you know, I, the, the geeks out there don't seem to bristle at us you know, infantilizing it to some degree. I think they, they're kind of like, cool, yeah, like my little scout is going on an adventure. It's going to go out in the backyard and get dirty and do a little task for me. Um, and then meantime, people who are less technical, it's a little more friendly, so it gives them a way to enter this universe and not get too mired down in jargon early on. And before they know it, they're mesh networking without even knowing what that means. Yeah, so the, the metaphor was a big part of the, the design choices that we made with this product. And is your background as a designer? Yeah, I'm a cartoonist and a user experience designer. So um, that's all about just the human element of of designing digital products, kind of a anthropologist, technologist. That's awesome. And how did you kind of get into uh, into this kind of level of technology? <laughs> yeah, I I started as a generalist. I I graduated college in 2000, and at that point there were still like webmasters, you know, like one person in the company that knew all the web stuff. Um, and I worked for an education startup at that point where we were doing math and science simulations that were really cool, like change the mass of the cannonball and shoot it out the cannon and see how the arc, you know, how the velocity changes. Um, that was a lot of fun. They actually hired me as an illustrator, but then once I got on board, they knew, they found out that I knew HTML and CSS and Flash. Um, so they kind of upgraded me to a multimedia developer. <clears throat> and then from there, um, I just did that for a while. I was like a generalist, kind of on the front end, um, doing design work, doing illustration work. And then as the web got massive, um, all the generalists started specializing. And when that happened, I, I specialized down into the interaction design specialty. And that kind of became user experience design in a, in a broader way. Yeah. And so my first like specialist role was with Yahoo. And that was kind of like my, my grad school, if you will, like just being around more senior designers that were awesome and a lot of really great mentorship happening there. Cool. Okay. Um, so kind of going back to Pinocchio, what is the business model there? So yeah, I so, some yeah. of it is open source, so I, I'm, is the hardware design open source as well as the code? Yeah. Yep. The hardware is open source and then there's, there's a lot of layers of the tech stack on the hardware side and much of it is open source, but there are a couple layers that are closed for us mm -hmm. um, just to sort of protect ourselves from competition, not to give it all out. Um, but the business model is really straightforward. The, we sell hardware for more than it costs to make it, so it's like the classic business model, which is so, so novel coming from the web. It's great. Um, our customers are actually our customers. Our customers are not our product. Um, we sell our customers this product, and um, so we make money off hardware sales, and then later we want to have some value add-on features on the software side. You know, if you want to be able to be that scientist that gets the text message when the, the freezer gets too warm, maybe you pay a small monthly fee to get the text message feature unlocked, stuff like that. And we're still kind of working on what exactly those models look like. But again, we don't want to lock in people to using our software. You don't have to use it if you don't want to. But if so, you could go and do your own 
Twilio integration on your own. But if you're like, hmm, I'd rather just pay a few bucks and get the text messages and not have to build that part myself, you can do that. But we're trying to make it really um, optional. Okay, yeah, because I think I think one one kind of way of obviously widening the pool of um, who's using it is to have stuff that's out of the box. So you actually almost package it up specifically for some of the most common use cases like sprinklers or you know bridges, yeah. and you say, right, this has that kind of whatever app already pre-installed or something. Totally. You just need to you just need to put this here, turn this thing on, right. and it will you know put in your whatever phone number and it will just happen. Um, I mean, is that something you guys plan to do yourselves, or you're thinking, or you think you may be thinking about opening that up for other people to provide, or right? Just quick question. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think in the short term, we definitely want to just continue to build out tools that'll help our community um, share what projects they're building um, and then share code that they've written. And so, like the the main way that we position ourselves is we're the platform for other people to build cool stuff. Um, but that's not to say, you know, we, we do hack days every week, and if we build something where we're like, this is actually really helpful, like someone, someone might actually pay money specifically for this, you know, enclosure with the Pinocchio with this code, you know, there's always the possibility that later, once, like we could sell that via our e-commerce site, but for now it's more like um, giving tools to our customers so they can go out and build those products, that's kind of the idea, so giving them the platform so they can quickly build a prototype, um, and then something that's on the way for us uh, down the road is releasing the Pinocchio Mini, which I don't have one here with me right now, but it's like a really minified version, um, maybe like about the size of a quarter. I'm not sure what that, a euro? So it's a little smaller than a euro. Um, yeah. That'll be FCC, IC, CE modular certified. So if you, if you are an entrepreneurial maker, you can quickly prototype using the Scout, but if you actually want to bring a product to market, you move that same code over onto this mini, it's going to carry our certification because it's modular certified. You don't have to go through the certification process. Um, that can just be the brains of your Internet of Things product. Um, meanwhile, you can prototype your enclosure with 3D printing um, and then go on and do injection molding or whatever for your final uh, enclosure. So that's kind of the pipeline is like, what are all the tools that from maker hobbyist all the way to entrepreneurs need um, just to get going really quickly and, and to focus on the specifics of what they're interested in, like sprinklers or beekeeping or homebrewing beer. So that's, that's really cool in terms of um, entrepreneurial projects and prototyping. I mean, could you give like just a couple of examples of what types of things you think um, people would be using this for? Sure, yeah. Um, As part I think, of prototyping? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of some like favorite ones. The beekeeping one is kind of a fun example that I always go to because um, I'm a beekeeper and I'm, but I'm also kind of like geeky and I think there are a fair number of beekeepers that are kind of geeks also. So if if I were to create a little um, scout beekeeping scout to put into my hive that had sensors, it's really helpful to have temperature control or temperature monitoring for a beehive. Um, it could alert me and say, your hive's getting really hot, you need to go do something about that. If it's, if it's too hot, there are things you can do. You can kind of prop open the top or change the board that's underneath so it's mesh instead of solid wood to get some airflow going. Um, sometimes temperature fluctuations are also signs that your hive is overcrowded and you might about, be about to lose half the hive. They, they go and swarm, and if you can catch them and put them in a new box, you've got a, a new queen and now you have two hives, so it's kind of a cool thing. 
So if you had simple sensors that could alert you to the state of your hive, um, that could be a really useful product. That's actually something that would be very easy to build on this platform. And then if a customer of ours wanted to go on and productize that, they could uh, you know, pitch it at specifically as a beekeeping product as opposed to this is a mesh networking, Internet of Things. You know, maybe beekeepers don't care about all that jargon. They're just like temperature control and alerts for my beehive. Yes, I want that. So that's the kind of like, that's how we see it playing out. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so I guess what I was looking at is obviously, um, you know, I can see why an individual would definitely be able to get it and use it. Um, and, you know, you're, kind of the story is that um, if you're trying to solve a particular problem, um, you know, such, such as beekeeping, which sounds like mm -hmm. a very good problem to be solving, why not? Yeah. Um, you know, so if people find a good mechanism of you know, combinations of sensors and uh, instructions and everything else that they can then package it up and you would sort of essentially um, but my I guess my question is that would they be tied to your product or could they just sort of use uh, Pinocchio's to figure out how it works and then just you know whatever get very specialized smaller pro, uh, you know sensors or something and then yeah that up or or would it be more piggybacking on on your model, I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah. backing's kind of good for you guys, but I was just wondering if there are any alternatives. Yeah, I think either. So they could, if they're just like, I just want to bring this thing to market as quick as possible. So this is one of the things we've observed in the course of the last couple of years when we've been working on Pinocchio is more and more hardware startups are emerging and they're proving the market demand via crowdfunding. Um, but then... Uh, it takes a long time to actually go from your prototype to bringing it to market. There's all these pitfalls. It's just famously hard to do. It's the double black diamond of, of startups is hardware. And so part of what we're trying to solve with giving people the option of the Pinocchio Mini is really try to reduce that time where they can go from prototype to, to market. If they have the functional prototype, port the code over to the Mini. Um, but that's not to say that they can't just, like you said, like use Pinocchio just to get a functional prototype going quickly and kind of prove out the idea test it with users, see if it works well, if it's intuitive, um, but then go ahead and still do your own bespoke hardware. Like, you could kind of use it either way. It depends on the scale. I mean, I think this is really fantastic. I think it's a, it's a really kind of exciting, I'm, I'm kind of thinking maybe I can come up with some things I could uh, play around yeah. with control. Um, so my, my kind of um, sort of closing, closing up question is, uh, say in the future, you know, we've got we've got these kind of microcomputers, uh, you know, lots, you know, we're not just using laptops and, and smartphones. I guess every, you know, people, everyday people are used to, really used to the smartphone, the laptop now. Um, people are less sort of uh, used to kind of the single purpose small devices, although I think actually in some ways that's a lot more intuitive because actually you're thinking this is a thing that does a thing but it's, it's connected up and I think that's that's going to be really. That's going to be really big. But say we are in a world where there's all these things, you know, monitoring your umbrellas, yeah. or or um, your kettles and things, and it, you know, things yeah. are working in time. Things are more efficient, more energy efficient. Yeah. Etc. How do we ensure that you know it's not the case that um, say kind of internet providers or, or people mm access that can sort of like shut things down or, or actually have control to the most sort of intimate parts of all over your house you know how, how do these devices not become kind of 
ultra super amazing surveillance. Um, totally. Yeah, it, it's it's so interesting. Like we are right on the cusp of this this wave that's coming, um, and hopefully we don't end up in the '80s dystopian sci-fi movie that we've all watched. You know, like it's it's very sci-fi, but it's happening now. Um, privacy is a huge issue. Security is a huge issue. Um, so that's something we're thinking about a lot. Like one of the things that we're doing right now is um, working with Jeremy Miller, who you had on the show, um, who's working on Telehash, and we're trying to integrate Telehash into our networking, so that's going to be a really critical part of it. Um, the, the NSA stuff was really timely for us as we started to talk to Jeremy about that, um, and it really just motivated us to move more quickly on that. Um, I think that's going to be critically important. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of issues with this. Like, I, I, don't, I don't look forward to a world where my kettle is dinging at me. <laughs> You know what I mean? So, like, privacy and security are huge concerns, but also just, like, how do we maintain our sanity, you know, and how do we design these products in really thoughtful ways um, that are humane, um, where we're solving a true need, where we're creating value in a person's life. Hope hopefully we're um, requiring less of them to care for these little machines um, so they're, they're actually able to go out and be in the world and be with their family and be present with their friends and be out in nature. So I... It's really tricky. I think we could easily have the situation where everything is dinging and it needs charging and it needs a firmware update and you're con you know like in the same way that you're doing that with your phone and your laptop if all of these objects are needing all this care, you know, suddenly you're a you're a caretaker of all these little electronic pets. Hmm. Um, and I I think the solution there is we need more designers. We really need more user experience designers. Um, that's kind of part of my mission in parallel to all this right now is just doing as many guest lectures as possible at design schools or art schools, trying to find populations of students who may not know about user experience design but are kind of geeky, techy, but also very creative, um, and trying to get them exposed to this idea of, like, this is a really great career path and we're about to need so many more of you. We already don't have enough and we need more and more and more. So that's kind of my, my mantra that I'm beating on. Yeah, and exactly. It's walking the path between... Um empowering people and meaning they don't always have to kind of go and pay some big company or somebody else to, to tell them things and give them information sort of, but actually right. allow people to be able to control things and get information themselves and kind of do things. Yeah. And I think, but also, yeah, the flip side, which is ensuring that that is actually private and secure and, and yeah. under the individual's control. And, uh, and again, yeah, actually in some ways just runs by itself and, 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 and um, so I think that's a that's kind of a really interesting area we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully see how that plays out and hopefully you'll go towards the uh, ultra usable side of things yes <laughs> so um, so I think we've, we've just got to kind of uh, we're coming to the end but I was just wondering is there anything else that you kind of want to say or tell people about uh, can people go by by this now is there any way for people to get involved or help Sure, yeah. We're, we are about to open up pre-ordering for the first time, so we've shipped out the crowdfunding rewards. They are in the hands of our backers, and so now, for the first time, we're about to open up pre-ordering for our follow-up wave of product. And so if you go to our homepage, which is um, pinocc.io, Pinocchio, without the H, um, there will be a little, you know, add me to your email list, and if you sign up as a beta tester, you'll be among the first group of people that we email um, we're going to send out a notification when pre-orders are available, 
beta testers will find out very first. You know, they'll have their, their first dibs on it. It'll be limited quantity run. Um, but yeah, we're, we're really hoping to get more and more product out into the hands of folks in our community this summer. Fantastic. Okay, well, Sally, thank you very, very much. It was thank a you. pleasure to talk to you. You too. This was fun. <laughs>